So before we get started, I got to come clean about something. I, I cheated on my sermon prep this week. I know. I know. I, I brought this passage that we're going to study from the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians to the third through fifth grade class last week. And they, we, we read through it. We talked about what does this passage say. And they, they helped me immensely. So where, where are my third through fifth graders that were here last week? You are not a third through fifth grader. I got one there. I got two of that. Put your hands up real high. I want everybody to see them. Put your hands up. If you were here last week and you, you were, or if you're in that class normally, can you put your hands up? Put your hand up. Go, go find these kids after the sermon today and talk to them about it. Okay? They understood this passage very well. They can converse with you about it. Talk to them about it. You will learn from them. I know that I did. So thank you to you guys. It was very helpful this week as I studied to look back at my notes from our class last week. So thank you. So if you'll recall, I know I'm being loud, Chip. Thank you for fixing it. <clears throat> you'll recall uh, Matt preached last week uh, on kind of a, an overview of 1 Thessalonians. And he went back to Acts uh, 17 to talk about the founding of this church, right? And really kind of the, the background that is helpful to have as we go through this letter. You'll remember that Paul planted the church. He was there for, it says, three Sabbaths. And then he had to hightail it out of there because uh, the, the authorities, uh, people in the town were not very happy with uh, the gospel of Jesus being preached in Thessalonica. And so he was on the run and being chased out. And understandably, he had planted this church. He had uh, taught these uh, new believers for three weeks, a month, something along those lines. And he had run out of town. He was concerned about them. He had left them in kind of tough circumstances. They're new believers, and they're in a hostile environment. And so uh, he apparently sent Timothy... Uh, his, his compatriot in uh, church planting and ministry, to Thessalonica to check in on them. How are they doing? What can we do? Do we need to get back there? How, how, we, how are they doing? What is going on? We left them in a hurry. We left them uh, in, in uh, adversarial territory. What is the state of the church at Thessalonica? And Timothy came back, and apparently his report was, not only are they doing well, they are thriving in many, many ways. But of course, not everything was perfect. They came, apparently, and had questions. And their questions were really worries about the future. Worries about, particularly worries around the return of Jesus. The church at Thessalonica was in such strong belief that Jesus was coming back they firmly believed that he was coming back any day now, any moment. When's he coming back? And they were concerned about the logistics of how he was, what was going to happen when he comes back. Now, how's he going to come down? What's going to happen to people that died? Uh, is it possible that we're going to miss it? They had all of these questions around, around the future and what was going to happen when Jesus returned. And so Paul writes this letter to answer their questions and to encourage them in the midst of the, the uh, persecution and the, and the adversaries that they are uh, dealing with. So when we come to chapter 1 here, 
before Paul gets into any of those specific concerns and addresses those questions on all these things they're worried about, he begins with an encouragement to them and to set a foundation. So Grace is going to come and read chapter 1. If you've got your scripture journals, go ahead and pull those out or, or pull out uh, one of the Bibles that's sitting at the end of the pews and follow along. We're going to read all of chapter 1, all 10 verses. So Grace... You want to hold this, or you want to? How do you want to do it? All right. We're going to read from First Thessalonians one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work and faith in labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on now? There you go. Helps when you turn it on. Okay, so before Paul gets into those specific issues, he brings this section of encouragement. Look at verse 3. This is a very encouraging verse. Remember before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. If you read that, just out of context, you just pulled that out, you might go, man, Paul seems pretty impressed with these Thessalonians. They're doing a pretty good job. It made me think of uh, something that I've gotten in corporate training a couple of times. Maybe you guys are familiar with this. It's called the feedback sandwich. 
Anybody ever heard of this? Right? So, Andrew, you got that image? Right? So this is the uh, graphical representation of it. You got feedback to bring to somebody. Maybe it's criticism. Maybe it's uh, some unpleasant criticism. You wrap it. That's the meat of a sandwich. You wrap it in a, the bread of a compliment, positive thing to start with, uh, to, to soften the blow. And then you end it with a... a something positive to close that conversation on a positive note, right? So that's the sandwich. I dislike the feedback sandwich. <laughs> Just, I've been taught it many times, and maybe it's a useful technique. Maybe there's people better than I that deliver it, but I, I just feel like it is really disingenuous. Like that bread is just feeling like I've got to say something nice, so I'm going to say something nice on both ends of this criticism but I don't really mean it. And so I think you could perhaps read uh, this, this opening chapter of Thessalonians and go, Paul, are you, uh, are you feedback sandwiching me here? Are you, are you saying something nice? And then we're going to get into chapter two and three and four, and it's going to be kind of rough. You got something critical to say, and then you're going to give me a nice little greeting at the end and, and call it a day, wrap that sandwich up and ship it off to me. I don't think that's what this is. Right? So my brain went there, right? It's almost like I was anticipating the feedback sandwich. But that's not what this is at all. Because if we read this, God is not, or Paul is not actually impressed with the Thessalonians. He, is, he goes forth, as we're going to read here, as we're going to study, and everything that he has to say about the Thessalonians, he's actually saying about God. He is rooting everything that he has to say in God, not in the Thessalonians. I think this is actually something that we can use very practically, right? Rather than a feedback sandwich, when you've got someone that's got something they're worried about, something they need care about, something that you want to help them with, do what Paul does here. He doesn't wrap them up in encouragement about themselves. He tells them something true about God, something that is unchanging, always going to be a fact. He tells them about God. So when you're counseling somebody, when you are caring for someone, when someone's worried and they bring that to you, bring them truth. Don't bring them a wrapped up feedback sandwich about how wonderful they are, or what they're doing right. Tell them what is true. I think Paul builds an argument here in chapter 1 to encourage the Thessalonians, but not in themselves, in God. This is truth of who God is and how they are to act as a foundation for everything else that Paul will talk about throughout this letter. And really, that foundational truth is what Matt gave you and that Tyler gave as encouragement earlier, that the church of, Thessal uh, of the Thessalonians is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in God the Father. As, as Tyler said, Matt put on that bathrobe. I don't, I don't do props. I don't, I don't bring my bathrobe. But that's it, right? We're in God the Father. So if you're worried about the future, you need to be reminded. You need to 
Put your faith in the fact that you are in God the Father. You are wrapped up. You are safe in the God of the universe. So I think chapter one builds out this idea, and I've got three points around this. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you were chosen, you are being used, and you will be delivered. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you were chosen, you are being used, and you will be delivered. So let's take a look at that first one. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you were chosen. So we looked at verse 3, right? Those, those uh, lofty things that you could read out of context and say, Paul's pretty impressed with the Thessalonians. But then look at verse 4, what he says. So let me read verse 3 again. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ... Now, verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The beginning of verse 4, that for we know, he's linking back to verse 3. He wants to make it clear in verse 4 that everything he just said in verse 3 about the Thessalonians was preceded by God choosing them. And that really shouldn't be a surprise, because as Matt said last week, we read that list. Works of faith, labors of love, steadfastness of hope. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Those aren't, those aren't things from the Thessalonians. Those are things from God. Look at each one of those with me. Works of faith. Works of faith. That is work produced by faith. The faith that came first then produces works. What's faith? I think Hebrews 11 has the best definition for us. Hebrews 11.1. 1, this is, I think, the King James version. Sorry to get King Jamesy on you, but I, think, I thought it, I thought it uh, was the clearest. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that word substance, it can actually be translated reality. Faith is the reality of of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What are the Thessalonians doing? They are doing works because of a reality that, although they cannot see it, they know is true. It's unseen, and yet that reality drives them to work. That's a reality that the Lord has shown to them. Labors of love. Everything I read pointed this to, to be talking about the hard work of loving one another. Something that the Thessalonians are apparently doing very, very well. Later, Paul will talk more about this in chapter 4. He's got more to say to them. But he, he opens with them uh, doing, doing this very, very well. Steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope, steadfastness, active endurance, particularly while under trials. Hope, confident, expected future. But all of these things, Paul wraps in the fact that because they were chosen, 
And if you look at, at all of the activity here, it's Paul is thanking God. He is remembering before God. These things are in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul is telling them that God chose them. All of these things are only possible because God chose them. Works of faith, because God chose you. Labors of love, because God chose you. Steadfastness of hope, because God chose you. Why is this important? Why do we start here? If it's not because God chose you, if it's because of what you do, then what happens when you stumble? What happens if the Thessalonians lose hope? What if their faith weakens and their works are no longer of faith? What if they have trouble loving one another? Is everything lost? If the foundation of Paul's encouragement is found in their performance, then when their performance develops cracks, the encouragement built on top of it all falls apart. But Paul doesn't root his encouragement in their performance. Rather, he begins with the unchanging, unshakable truth that God chose them before they did anything to deserve it or anything not to deserve it. God chose them. Okay, Paul, but fine. But how do you know he chose us, right? Maybe he chose some people, but how do you know he chose us? Again, Paul's building his case here. Verse 5, he goes straight to it. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit full, with full conviction. How do we know? Because the gospel came to you. Not only in word. I just love that phraseology. Not only in word. Yeah, it came in word, obviously. The gospel is a series of words written down, spoken. It's a message. But the gospel is not like any other series of words or any other message because of the other three things. The gospel, unlike any other series of words, comes in power. The words are heard, but the words do more. They do more than just process, fire off synapses in your brain. They have an effect that causes change. They can make you uncomfortable. They have the power to convert your soul. The word power here is the same word that Matt used in a sermon two weeks ago when he handed out the dynamite. Remember the little dynamite candles? And he talked about this is uh, the Greek, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, dynamis, right? The root word for dynamite. It's explosive power. That's what's in the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit, it takes those words and in your soul, in your mind, in your body, it brings understanding that you have no chance of having on your own. It recognizes these powers and uses them for regeneration. And then, through these words, through that power, through the Holy Spirit, full conviction. It's fully believed and has an effect throughout the entirety of a believer's life. It's not, doesn't mean a lack of questions 
not even at times doubt, but even with those questions and doubt, it has a full belief and a resulting impact. All the action here is from God. The believer is doing nothing in these words. It is the gospel bringing effect to the believer because of God. They didn't go after it. It came to them. They weren't desiring it. It came to them. This is God's grace for us as believers. Paul saw these things happening in the church at Thessalonica, and because of that, he was sure that God had chosen them. Has the gospel come for you? Have you heard the words? This is often quoted, but I want to read John 3, 16 and 17 and 18 because I think as a very good summary of the gospel, but it also, I think, brings that power. Read this with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Feel that power? Do you feel the claim that this passage and so many others, the truth, the gospel, makes on your life? Even if you don't believe it. This passage says that you are condemned. Without Jesus, you are condemned. Believe it or not, you're condemned. That's a claim it makes. Do you feel a little discomfort about that? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to clarify what that means? What does that mean? What are the, the claims of Jesus? If they're true, what does that mean? Make it clear. If the Holy Spirit has brought that, has it had an impact on your life? Have they caused a change in how you see the world, how you live your life, what you do each and every morning, what you do throughout the day. That's the gospel that's come for you. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to hear the gospel, to feel the power of the gospel, to have the Holy Spirit examine you against the claims of the gospel, bring regeneration and full conviction to have your life reordered as a result. If you've been confronted with these, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, if you've got questions, we'd love to talk with you. Tyler, myself, anybody here would love to talk with you about what it means to understand the claims of Jesus. There's one other note about being chosen that I, I just wanted to highlight. We just got done in Genesis a couple weeks ago. This idea of being chosen 
there's an echo back to Abraham being chosen in Genesis 12. God chose Abraham and his family as the vehicle by which he was going to bless the entire world. Most clearly, I think, stated in Genesis 18, this is the kind of strange conversation within the Godhead before the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 18 says, See, this is, this is God speaking within the Godhead. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Recall Matt talked about last week, the Thessalonian church is a mixture of Greeks and Jews. There could have been some amount of disagreement about who was chosen and who was not, because if you're Greek, then you aren't chosen through Abraham. Paul's making it really clear here. Greek, Jew, Mount Arian, Baltimorean, wherever. If you are chosen by God, then through Jesus Christ, you've been made a part of God's people, just like Abraham and his family. If the gospel has come to you, if it has come not just in word, but in power and with the Holy Spirit and full conviction, then you are part of God's chosen people. So, as part of God's chosen people, what are we to do? So that's my second point. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you are being used. Paul continues this argument now that he's set that clear foundation that it was God who chose you and says there's evidence of that choosing in the fact of all of the things that you are doing. You are being used by God. Being used sounds kind of terrible, doesn't it? We think of that as being uh, manipulated I probably could have thought of a better phrase or something to use, but I kind of like it because um, it's so counter to the way we think of it. You are being used by God. Sorry. Hope you're okay with that because that's what it means to follow Jesus. He's going to use you. This is God empowering you and enabling you to be his ambassador. He is putting you to work for his purposes. Not your purposes, his purposes. The works of faith we talked about, putting to work for a reality that you know is true, but you can't see. And the work the Thessalonians have been. They've been an example to apparently all the believers. Paul indicates that they are imitators of himself and Timothy and Silvanus as those who spread the word of God in all Macedonia and Asia, And everyone has nothing but positive reports about the church in Thessalonica. Or Thessalonica, sorry. This would be like if Christ's church was known to spread God's word in all of Frederick County, Carroll County, and Howard County, and Montgomery County. That's what we want, right? That's what we want to be known for, is spreading God's word everywhere, making him famous. 
They are being used. God is using this church and his plan to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. This is all confirmation and evidence supporting his encouragement to the church. Church, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at all he is and has and will continue to do through you. And this encouragement applies to us as well. Sometimes it can be hard to see, perhaps, but look at all that God is doing in and through Christ Church in Mount Airy, in Imesville, in Monrovia, in Woodbine, in Newmarket, and to the corners of these four counties. Look at what he's doing in your small groups when you meet early in the morning or late at night. Look at what he's doing through all of these children, through you with all of these children, whether it's on Sunday mornings, it's on Wednesday evenings, it's in your house, it's at sports events, whatever it is. Look at what God is doing in your neighborhood or at work or in any of the activities that you do, shopping, everything else. We talk about this all the time. God is at work in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, and in our community. But there was one challenging aspect for me, and it's found in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators, preachers, spreaders of God's word in much affliction. The affliction that they were facing didn't stop them. They spread the word anyway. Through affliction, through hardships, through opposition. Maybe you're like me. I, I find this challenging. Because I can let things that I would certainly not categorize as affliction stop me from spreading God's word. Schedule's too busy. I, I'm busy at work. Things going on in my house is a mess. I got to get things cleaned up. I got to get everything right before I can take that next step, before I can set up that appointment or go see how they're doing or whatever it is. I can let small things way short of the affliction that the Thessalonians here are facing stop me from spreading God's word. Now, I know there are some of you that are facing real, true affliction. And yet you continue to preach God's word in all the circumstances that you are facing. And I think you should feel the commendation and the well done that is coming from this verse for you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit brings you joy as you're doing that, just as Paul commends to the Thessalonians. But my point here is that Paul clear, clearly identifies how God uses the Thessalonians powerfully for his mission even when there are barriers, even when there are, is affliction. It doesn't hold God back. He doesn't wait until it's over. So church, there are no barriers to stop you from being used by God today. There's nothing going on in your life that God has to wait until that's taken care of before he can act. 
There is nothing that should hold you back from receiving the joy and the Holy Spirit as God uses you to spread his word. My last point is really uh, tied into that affliction. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be delivered. Look at that. Look at uh, verse 9. 9 and 10 with me. I'm going to pick up right in the middle. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the hope the Thessalonians are steadfastly holding on to, that they will, that Jesus will come and will deliver them. They're being persecuted. They're being afflicted, beaten. We'll find out later they are dying as a result of their faith. They are daily and constantly aware of their need to be rescued for a deliverer to come. This is the event that they are eagerly anticipating, looking forward to, preparing for. Jesus' return to deliver them. Because of their circumstances, they are very aware of their need for a deliverer. And we see they fully recognize God's Son, Jesus, as the one and only deliverer. Turn, turning away from idols, turning, turning away from idols, turning to Jesus. Paul encourages them that in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be delivered. You have turned away from false deliverers. You have steadfastness of hope in Jesus, the Son from heaven who will deliver. You are doing right. So what, you're doing it right. So what does Paul tell them now? To serve and to wait. I think the serve here is referring back to all of the things he's just talked about. All the ways God's been using them. Keep doing it. Don't stop. That's what you're here, that's what you're called to do with your whole life, to serve God. But also, you have to wait. Waiting. Waiting is so hard. And this isn't like other waiting. It's not waiting at the DMV. It's not passing time waiting for it to go by. This isn't even like waiting for the best ride at Disney World, where it's something good that you're waiting for, not something you have to do. You're not sitting there just looking at your watch, wasting time. When's it going to happen? It's not that kind of waiting. This is an active waiting. This is waiting with steadfastness, with enduring hope, with eager expectation as God's chosen people. But while we wait... We serve. Don't be distracted. Don't let idols of this world suck you in or false promises of deliverance from false deliverers. Don't get bored. Don't get familiar with the idea of rescue. It should always be amazing. Remain steadfast. Pray for Christ's return. Consider what it will be like when he returns. 
Let that grow your excitement. Church, I think we could learn a lot from the Thessalonians as they are just eagerly anticipating. As we'll see later, they're so eagerly anticipating, they're, they're worried about what do I do tomorrow because Jesus could come back. How do I make that happen? What do, I, what do I need to do tomorrow because Jesus could come back? I don't think that way. We should be thinking that way. What is going to happen tomorrow if Jesus comes back? And while we wait, we serve. Labors of love, brotherly love for one another, works of faith, spreading the word of God to, to everyone. Now, I didn't go looking for it, but it's here, right? Works of faith, let's go. Labors of love, let's grow. So this is our mission, church. It's not new. It's just in another place. What are we to do while we wait? We serve. What does serving look like? It's going and growing. And none of this is to earn God's love because he chose us. Remember? Order matters. He chose us first. So what does this passage tell us, church? God has chosen you to serve and wait until he delivers you. Are you worried about the future? Do you have questions and concerns? What are you to do? We are to live as God's chosen people, serving and waiting. Christ Church, you are God's chosen people. Jesus is coming to deliver you, to rescue you. Actively and eagerly wait, serve, go with works of faith, and grow with labors of love. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we need you. We need your help to make the reality of Jesus' return more real to us, that we might live each and every day considering What's it going to mean when Jesus returns? How do I prepare for Jesus' return? How do I serve while I wait for Jesus' return? What does it mean to be chosen while I wait for Jesus' return? Lord, help each one of us as we consider these things this week. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is experiencing affliction, who is experiencing opposition, who is experiencing hardship, and continuing to serve and wait faithfully. Lord, I pray that you would empower them, Lord, give them more faith, give them more joy through the Holy Spirit. Build that faith in each one of us, Lord, that your Son is coming. He will come on the clouds. We will meet him in the air. And there is nothing better than the days that will come when he returns. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.